By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adamian Golf. So on this show, we like to explore a variety of topics. One of them that I find myself more passionate about as I grow older is more fitness related and dealing with pain and injuries and all that good stuff and how you can play golf better for, by improving your body. So with that, we have someone who is one of the top experts in the industry. We have Dr. Greg Rose, who is the co-founder of the Titleist Performance Institute. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure to be here. So I think everyone knows who T TPI is at this point. You guys have had a massive influence on the golf industry. Your website, I was just going through it again. It's just such an incredible resource. You guys give away a ton for free, which is really nice. And we want to educate our listeners more on this stuff. So some people I think are familiar with TPI. Maybe they've done a screening. Maybe they've worked with one of your professionals. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've done since... Well, it's 2003 since it first started, right? It's been a long time. That's right. Yeah. So the, the quick story is we are located in, in beautiful Southern California in San Diego. We are the performance center for Titleist, the golf company. Back in 2002, the CEO, Wally Uline, was like, hey, I see most of these sports around the world have teams and they support their players with the medical and fitness and research. And we don't really have anything. He was like, I've been interested in building something to take care of our players. And at the same time, he's like, you know, we, we are the number one ball company in golf. And it's to our benefit to have golfers play better, play longer, because the average golfer loses five golf balls every time they play golf. <laughs> and there's a good chance <laughs> when they lose one, they're going to buy a Titleist golf ball. So 
like you said, there's a lot of free stuff on our site. One of our missions at, at TPI and Tylus was get as much good information out there so golfers will learn more, play better, play longer, because it helps the entire industry. So in 2003, we built something called the Tylus Performance Institute. And it's where all of our best players in the world come out to get fit, to get all the biomechanics and 3D done, force plates, video. We can do all the physical testing. Anything they need to help them perform better, we handle there. And if there's any injuries, people come out and, and we kind of help get them in the right pathway and get them back playing as fast as possible. And then we realized real quickly that we had one of the largest teams in the world. What I mean by that is I'm a chiropractor. My, my background is a, was an engineer. That's why I do a lot of the biomechanics and engineering and then became a chiropractor. And one of the, the problems we had was when, like if you work with a baseball team, there's 250 players with the minors and majors. And that was always a tough sport because there were so many players. When Tylus came and asked me and Dave Phillips, the co-founder, to take care of their players, I was like, man, this is going to be a joke. There's only like, you know, 125 guys on the PGA Tour. How many of those are Tylus? It's going to be, I was thinking there might be maybe 200, maybe 250 players. Well, we come to find out that there's close to 8,000 players sponsored worldwide by Tylus. So I always say <laughs> I think we have the biggest team in sports. So when we, yeah, oops. So when we came, when we really opened up in 2004, we sat down with the CEO and I was like, with Wally Uline, and I was like, there's no way we can take care of 8,000 players. I go, but we could teach medical, fitness, and golf coaches to do what we do and kind of provide them the data that they might need to help these players. And he was like, do it. And that's always been the cool thing is like most teams, if you go work with the Dodgers or if you go work with the Lakers, if you go work with Manchester United, their information, their data is secretive and they don't like to give information out. One of the coolest things about being with Tylos for over 20 years is they've just been an open book, like share, share information, which is really, really cool. And we created a certification program for medical, fitness, and golf coaches to try and help golfers play better. And we now have close to 27,000 TPI certified professionals in 64 countries all over the world. We actually teach in 10 languages. It's been a crazy ride that, that's, that just keeps going. And that's pretty much TPI. At mytpi.com is where you can find out all the information. We have like I said, everything we learned, we we put up there. It's awesome. I know you're still dealing with backlash on stuff like weightlifting and stuff like that. What was the initial feedback through through the years from the golf industry? Because you, you're coming out and you're saying, well, we don't believe in one swing. We're starting to find out that if you have certain physical limitations, this is the way you should swing a club. So you're kind of veering off the path of what was traditionally being taught in golf. What's some of the backlash you've dealt with, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, like, like I said, my, my first golfer was 1996, right? The kind of unique thing is I started the same year Tiger Woods started. I think he helped us a lot because he kind of put this on the map. But back in the day, Brad Faxon, one of the first tour players I ever worked with, told me a great story. He said when he got on tour, and this is, you know, now we're going back. 30, 40 years ago, Chichi Rodriguez came over, put his arm around him and said, hey, I'm going to do you a favor. And he pointed over at the Health South trailer. He said, you stay out of that trailer and you're going to be fine. Right? <laughs> that was kind of the mentality is, hey, you know, golfers drive carts and drink beer. You don't need to be an athlete. But then all of a sudden, this kid, Tiger Woods, and there was guys like Greg Norman and Nick Faldo that everyone was like, well, these guys are kind of athletes, right? And they're, they're doing pretty darn good. And everybody started thinking, you know, there's a lot of money in the game now. Maybe if I, instead of going to play football or baseball or something, maybe the athletes go into golf, maybe we can make some money. As you can see now, the world has completely changed. So in the past, we used to have to convince people that, hey, exercise should be part of the sport. Now we don't really have to do that. Like, so now it's more of convince me that you're the person that knows what they're doing to give me the right program. Yeah, we had Dr. 
Rob Gray on yesterday. He was talking about some of the constraints and why people move. And that relates a lot to what you guys do, especially I know with the screens, you find out, or I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it's one of the goals of the screen is to find out exactly why a player is not able to do certain movements, right? Right. So movement screening, we should talk about this for a minute. So we created a movement screen for golf. And I think a lot of people don't really understand what the movement screen's for. So Let's talk about some of the the things that people believe. So let's talk about injury prediction or can a screen predict injury? I can tell you for 25 years trying to figure out how to do this is movement screens absolutely cannot predict injury, right? That is not what they're designed for. I'm one of the owners of Functional Movement Systems. FMS is one of the number one movement screens in the world. We, We have the NFL combine, the MLB combine, the NHL combine, and I'm telling you, Movement screening does not predict injury. It can be part of an injury prediction system, but sometimes, like, let's say you fail a movement screen, Adam, and I pass the movement screen. If you believe that your movements are horrible and you believe that these movements would create pain, you're probably not going to do something stupid and there's a big chance you won't get hurt. Or a lot of times, if people who think they can move, but maybe they're not as perfect as they think they are, they're even at a higher risk, even though their movement screen was better than yours. So I, there's, there's a million things I can go down the path to show you why movement screening doesn't predict injury, but it can be part of an injury prediction system. The second thing then people think is like, okay, so if it's not for predicting injury, well, then it must be for talent identification, right? So let's figure out like, can I figure out who's going to be the next PGA Tour player or LPGA Tour player? And I can tell you once again, it has... Very poor reliability in predicting who can get to the highest level. So talent identification is definitely not the goal of movement screen. I mean, I I saw some of the best basketball players in the NBA score some of the worst movement screens you've ever seen in your life, right? There's a million ways to get a job done, and there's a million reasons why people are on tour. So then you'd say, like, why do we even have a movement screen? What's the point? Well, it's actually just so simple, and it makes us laugh when we see people do research about movement screens that they can't predict injury, they can't do talent. I'm like, you could have just called us and we would have told you that 20 years ago. What the movement screen does is one simple thing. It helps you understand why they swing that way. That's it, right? So if you want to know like, hey, why did they come over the top? You know, I always say before you dissect somebody's swing, if we're going to talk, let's say swing mechanics, right? You want to know what, why, and how, right? You want to know what they're doing, you want to know how they're doing it, and you want to know why they're doing it, right? With that information, you could be pretty deadly as an instructor. And if you want to know what somebody's doing, that's biomechanics, 3D, video, high-speed video. You know, if you look at somebody, put the sensors all over them and look at, let's say, their kinematic sequence, that's, you know, something that I think we're one of the originators of that. People will always, they'll, they'll send us a sequence and they'll say, hey, what swing drill should I do to improve this? And I'll tell them a million times, even though I don't think it registers, that is what they're doing. I don't know why they're doing that. So I can't give you a drill. It could be because of their bad shoulder. It could be because of a swing thought, right? It could be a mechanical problem. That's what they're doing. A video camera tells you what they're doing. You want to see where their shaft lean is and where their face is. Perfect. That's what they're doing. Why they're doing it? A whole different conversation, okay? So then we go to, all right, how are you doing something? So what is video, 3D? How you're doing something is force. So there's kinetics, right? So if we look at the ground force reactions, If you want to know how they weight shifted, there's 40 different ways to weight shift from right to left, right? Force plates will tell us how they did that. If you want to know how they turn these ground reaction forces into rotary, again, ground forces will help us do that. So that's what and that's how. If you want to know why they swing like that, you want to know why their club does this, well, now there's where the movement screen can be a huge help. Things like your concept can be a big help. So mental thing, 
those are some of the whys that I think are really important. But, you know, we always want to know all three of those before we attack a golfer. So I would say movement screening helps us determine the whys. That's why we do movement screening. So what are some of the highest correlates with movement screens and movements themselves? So is there a, a good predictor of, say, early extension or chicken wing in or something like that? Right. So what's really important on this, and that's the great, great question, is movement screening can really help you predict swing characteristics. Now, swing characteristics cannot help you predict movement. So if you say somebody who early extends and you go, oh, I bet you their toe touch, their hip hinging is bad, or I bet you their squat's bad. There's absolutely, you can't go that direction because they could just be early extending because they don't know what the hell they're supposed to do, right? It just could be a mechanical problem, right? But once we see a physical limitation, right? For example, there's been lots of studies on things like, all right, hip internal rotation or trunk spine rotation or shoulder limitabilities and and shoulder flexion and which swing characteristics it can create. The thing that's really interesting about that is if I say to you, okay, let's say your lead hip is restricted. Very common, right? So a lot of guys have lead hip problems. And I check you in a movement screen and it says, oh, you've got no internal rotation in your lead hip. What's something, what, how about you guys, have you seen this before? Have you guys talked about this on your podcast? I've talked about my hip inflexibility and what I've done. You got that? Well, I, I, work, I work on it every day and it's a lot better than it was. Thank, thanks to a TPI screening a couple of years ago. Now, is it your lead side or your trail side? I think it was probably both. I don't know. It wasn't. It wasn't good. But I I do ninety nineties every night. I do all the stuff that <laughs> okay, you guys nice. prescribe, and it's helped a lot. <laughs> Great. So so basically, our like we actually have an app that you can put it put it in, and it uses a little AI engine, a little machine learning engine, and it can predict what your swing will look like. And it is scary how good the computer is once it looks at your physical screens. But here's the thing: you got to remember is let's say your lead hip is restricted, right? Let's say it doesn't internally rotate. You can't rotate and post up on your lead hip. Well, you might say, oh, okay, I'm going to early extend. I'm going to move towards the ball instead of rotating, right? But everybody's got a different way. There's a million ways to swing. Like we said, we don't believe there's one way to swing. You might just turn your foot out, just externally rotate your foot. It's set up, and now you don't need to internally rotate, and your swing looks great. You might instead, maybe you'll slide instead of early extend, or maybe you'll just hang back, say, screw it. I'm not even going to go left, and I'll just hang back and swing. So, it's really hard, Adam, to make correlations between movement screens and like one characteristic, but it's really easy to see the patterns of like when you, instead of trying to predict what your swing is going to look like, which we do this party trick at TPIs all the time. Like we, we do a physical screen and we try and guess what their swing is going to look like. And we're scary good at doing that. But what I like with the movement screen is don't try and predict, do the movement screen, look at the swing. And then usually you'll go, oh, now that makes sense. I understand why they're doing it that way. That's the point of the movement screen is to help you as a coach understand why they swing that way. So in a perfect world, obviously more instructors are becoming TPI certified. So they're understanding the body part of it and in combination. Don't you think it's important to know why your students swing in that way? I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? When I was younger and probably went to some of my first lessons, I went to you know a teacher who wanted everyone to swing the same way. And obviously, I mean, the thing that always stuck out to me and still sticks out to me is more the the pro golfer stuff. So when people use pro golfers and saying like, oh, look at Justin Johnson's move or Rory's and then and then you guys do a screening of Rory and you say, well, he's got the best separation between his torso and hips like we've literally ever seen. So how does someone who sits all day, how can they mimic that move? I call it style bias, right? So most coaches have a style bias. There's a certain swing that they like and they try and make everybody swing like that, right? But I think we've learned now because of all the screening that 
hey, Adam Scott's pretty freaking flexible, right? And when you compare a student to Adam Scott, most people are going to need 12 surgeries to do what you're about to show him that Adam Scott's going to do, right? So instead of saying there's one way to swing, we now know there's an infinite number of ways to swing. We should be trying to figure out what's the best way for the student in front of us to swing. And to do that, you have to know what they can physically do. It's, you know, it's like when you go to a doctor and you're feeling sick, they don't just walk out with a bucket of pills and they say, just put your hand in there, pick out a pill, and hopefully you get the right one. They kind of do an evaluation first to figure out what you have and they give you the right pill, right? So we're just saying this is just part of your job as a, a swing instructor is that you should at least inspect the car that you're about to drive. If you're the pilot, inspect the plane just to make sure that you've got both engines firing. And if you don't, let's say there are physical limitations, which is about 99% of the people you're going to check. You got two options. You can either get them with somebody to try and improve those physical limitations or forget it. Let's just coach around them. Let's build a swing that they can do. Either one's fine. We've got players on the PGA Tour and the LPGA Tour that have built swings around their limitations. It's not a problem. Can you talk about, I think John Rahm is the one that comes up a lot. You guys have done a ton of videos on that. And he's got this like super short backswing and gets his hips open really early. Like, And then some people are like, oh, I want to shorten my swing like John Rahm, like, can you just give him as an example? Like, why why does his swing accommodate his body so well? Okay, so uh, John's somebody we know really well. So we've taken care of John since he was 15 years old. And John is a very large human, right? So he's got a, <laughs> lot, of, a lot of power. He grew up in Spain, in the north of Spain, and played high lie. And he was always, everything he did was short and compact. So he just, he learned to do short and compact power development. And I always like to say, a lot of people are like, oh, he must be tight. That's why he does this. He's one of the most flexible guys. Like we put a bunch of his videos just to show you that he's got all the range of motion. It's just how he learned to develop power. He has a right foot club foot that he was born with. So he's got some issues that if he does go too far, sometimes it gets him a little out of posture and problems. So it actually helps clean up some of those limitations. So we've always encouraged to keep it that way. But I always like to say that if we want to go down the power route and talk about how to create power, right? If you take all the research out there, I think you can kind of pretty much summarize it all into three things. There's three things you can do to hit a ball farther, right? You can increase power, which is two things, force and velocity. So you can increase the force you apply to the club. That's one, get stronger, put more force onto the club. Number two is you can move the club faster. That's velocity, right? So force times velocity is power. Those are two ways, more force, more velocity. And the third way is apply that force and velocity for a greater amount of time. That's called the impulse, right? So I always use the example that you're sitting on a chair with wheels. If somebody stands behind you and you're one foot away from a wall and you push somebody into the wall, from one foot away, you could hurt them, but you couldn't kill them. If you get 100 feet away from the wall and take a running start and you have more time to apply that force and velocity, you can do some serious damage. The same thing is true with golf. This is where like a, a John Daly or a, Dustin, a longer swing, they have more time to apply that force and velocity. So if you want to hit a ball farther, you either increase the force, increase the velocity, or increase the time you apply the force and velocity. That's pretty much it, right? So with a guy like John, if he has a short swing, or a guy like Tony Fee now, if they've got a short swing, then you know they're applying a lot of force and velocity, right? For a lot of your amateurs, if they go, oh, I'm going to go shorter swing, they don't have the force and velocity. And that's a horrible recommendation for somebody who doesn't have the size and power output that these players are doing. So I'm always like, let's just make sure you're you're applying the right, let's say, formula to the person in front of you. Can you talk a little, you mentioned the word kinematic sequence before. Can you talk a little about what that is and what you found with that? Yeah. So remember I said most coaches have something called style bias, that they think everybody should swing the same way. Well, way back in the day, we realized that that, that was 
obviously not not correct. There's millions of different swings out there. So we were like, so is there anything in common with these players? Is there something? Are they all different? Everything is there. Is there certain universals? And we used to have these debates, Adam, where we'd say, all right, pick something that you think every player has to do, and then we would show you ten people that make over a million dollars playing golf that don't do what you're about to say, right? So these were our, our, our style debates we used to call, right? But then if you start looking, instead of looking at style, instead of looking at how they move, like, or what position the club is in or all the style traits out there, if instead you look at how they create power and how they transfer power through their body, something amazing happens. And I always say you can get on a Goodyear blimp, go above the first tee, and Tiger Woods and Jim Furyk can walk out to the tee. And I'm pretty sure all three of us from the Goodyear blimp could tell which one was Ferrick and which one was Tiger from, from the Goodyear blimp because their swings are so different style-wise. But if instead, if I showed you, if I looked at how they create power and how that power transfers through their body, I don't think you can tell the difference between Tiger and Jim. They're very similar. The kinematic sequence is the measurement of how a player creates power and transfers power through their body. The best analogy, and it's not perfect because the, the body's a little different, is like a cracking of a whip. You know, energy starts with the handle of the whip, handle starts, the handle goes fast, but it transfers to the next part of the whip, it goes faster, goes to the next part of the whip, goes faster, and it gets to the tip of the whip and it creates the crack. We now know that the best golfers in the world start their forces on the ground, these ground reaction forces, hence why these force plates are so important. And we can see the handle of the whip is your lower body. Your lower body creates the power. And then the best players in the world, they take that power and they're able to transfer the power to their trunk. The trunk then starts to accelerate. Then they transfer to their arms and then they transfer to the club, like the tip of the whip. And then they do it at a perfect timing, right where it makes contact with the ball. And with these 3D sensors, this is why 3D motion capture has taken off in sports. It's not because it creates these cool little models is we can actually measure, do you do that? Do you start with your lower body, transfer to your trunk, transfer to your arms into your club? And that's the kinematic sequence, the sequence of how players create power and transfer power. And we're always like, why would you guess when you can assess this really quickly and see? Because, listen, if somebody has a really unique style and you've never seen a swing like this, it's very common for coaches to go, wow, that's, you're doing it wrong. Instead of going, maybe this kid figured out a new way to swing that I should look at, right? Who knows? Like, this could be the innovative swing that we've been waiting for. The kinematic sequence will tell you if what they're doing is efficient or not. If it's efficient, as a coach, I'd be like, let's just make sure what they're doing is not going to hurt them and let's, let's go with it. If it's inefficient, we're probably going to step in and say, that's probably not going to be the best thing. Because efficiency creates three problems. Number one, consistency, right? So if it's not efficient, there's consistency problems. Number two is command. You don't know where the ball is going. And number three is power. Like you want to be able to create power with the least amount of effort, not with the most amount of effort. And efficiency can create problems with all three of those. We're very style agnostic in this podcast. You know, we're, we're always looking. I'm As a coach, I'm always interested in what are the things that all pros do, you know, or at least a, a very high percentage of them. But, you know, I, I'm always taking the opposite argument as well. Like I love to show Jim Furyk and say, well, why does this work? And we talk about three skills, you know, contact in the ground in the right place, contact in the center of the face and controlling the club face orientation. So you're saying kinematic sequence is one of these things that in movement wise, at least is a very high correlator. Is there, because I know even with kinematic sequence, there's things such as your, your takeaway sequence, there's things such as the transition sequence, and then there's even the peak, peaking sequence. I know we're getting into the weeds here a little bit, but is there something that really highly correlates with elite level play within those, or is it all very similar? Okay, well, so 
you just said something really important. You said, does the kinematic sequence correlate with elite level play? So let's talk about that first. I've got six-year-olds with perfect kinematic sequences, right? So a kinematic sequence is how efficiently you create power and transfer power through your body. Whether you do that with a square face, center face contact depends on the skill you have, right? So it's the potential to be a great ball striker, right? If as a coach, if you have somebody with a great kinematic sequence, this is the kid you want to coach because there's, it's just small little fixes. Just get the club face and they're, they're just, they're awesome. If the kinematic sequence is off and you think their swing looks pretty, you're wrong. Their swing's not pretty and you need to rebuild what they're doing, right? So I don't want to say if you have a perfect kinematic sequence, you're going to be on tour. You could be six years old and have a perfect kinematic sequence. So the, the two things that we like to look at, number one is the, you said there's a three sequences there, backswing sequence, there's a transition sequence, and there's the downswing peaking or decelerating sequence. The one when I say the kinematic sequence we're always referring to is the downswing sequence, right? So, you know, we used to think that if I was going to, if I was going to create power, I would rotate my body full speed right into contact. Like I wouldn't, my lower body would rotate, my trunk would rotate, and everything would be accelerating until I made contact and then you would slow down. We're like, why would you ever slow your body down before you make contact? This is what we used to believe before we had this, these types of devices. When the 3D data started coming back in, we started realizing, we're like, wait a minute. Like we, I, I'm telling you, like 1998, I did a handheld 3D motion capture on Eric Gagne, a rookie pitcher with the, the Dodgers. And I remember seeing the lower body slow down early. And I was like, man, I think he's got to keep his lower body accelerating because it's slowing down before release. And that's got to be a problem, right? We just didn't think about it. We're like, well idiot. If you think about the handle of the whip, the handle handle stops way before the tip cracks, right? That acceleration and deceleration is part of the energy transfer going on. So we now know that, like I said, the lower body actually peaks speed first, like the handle of the whip peaks speeds first, which also means it starts to slow down right first. And then the trunk peaks speed second, and then the arms peak speed third and the club hopefully peaks at impact. That's the kinematic sequence that we, we always look at as number one. That's the most important for efficiency. And then we always look at the speeds, those peak speeds, because you can have a perfect kinematic sequence, but everything can be slow. Because remember, the goal here is to create power, and power is force times velocity. Adam, you can have a kinematic sequence that has more speed than me, but I can still hit it farther if I apply more force. So in other words, like a paper airplane goes really fast, but it has no force behind it, right? So this is half of the power component. It's given me angular velocity. So I like to look at the speeds and I look at, like to look at the downswing peaking sequence first. Those are the most important. It gives me an idea. Do I need to increase the speeds that this player is moving because it's half the power formula and the sequence in which they're doing it? If there's a problem with either one of those, I might go look at those other sequences you talked about. The transition sequence, which is how they start their downswing, can screw up their downswing sequence. So we like to look at that secondary if the downswing sequence is off. And the backswing sequence, something we've studied for years, I've seen so many different variations. The only thing I, that I can tell you that I get worried about with the backswing sequence is if the lower body peaks speed first in the backswing. In other words, if you spin your hips to take the club away, usually it's very difficult to recover. We've seen that in some players. But backswing sequence is very low in the priority list for me. Downswing sequence is number one, speed's number two, and then I work to transition and back. Does that make sense? Definitely, yeah. And even with those peak 
speeds on the downswing. I know you said seg- segments have to decelerate. I know when I first heard that, I was I was thinking, okay, well, I have to consciously stop my hips. You know what I've learned since, and and this was actually done through a TPI video that I was watching. It was a guy in a swivel chair, an office chair, and he was showing how when you accelerate your arms really fast, your your lower body actually goes in the opposite way. So that really made sense to me that you know when you see Rory McIlroy s- slow down his hips or you know even with baseball players you see sometimes a hip reversal and that's because not because they're trying to reverse their hips but because they're actively trying to accelerate other parts right if you think about it of course the lower body is part of that it's stabilizing you're taking that linear ground reaction force and converting into rotation but what most people don't realize is you're trying to turn your torso right so when you go to turn your torso there's really two main muscles that do this and they're called your oblique abdominals you have if i'm rotating to the left that's my left internal oblique and my right external oblique are rotating me to the left. Well, those abdominals attach from my rib cage to my pelvis. So if they're trying to move the rib cage, they need to grab onto something. Well, the only thing they're grabbing onto is the pelvis. So they try and hold the pelvis so they can turn the trunk. And that active acceleration of the next segment usually decelerates the previous segment. It's kind of like imagine a two-stage rocket. When the, the main thrusters moves the, the whole rocket, that's pelvis and trunk, and then when the second stage fires, it blows off the, the, the first stage. The first stage will rapidly decelerate as the next one accelerates. That's really the best analogy to the kinematic sequence in your body. We get deep into the biomechanics. Yeah. Right? John's looking like, what, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> Wait, are, we, are we still recording? <laughs> if I could change topics for a second. <laughs> If you go to any golf club around the world right now, they're stocked with Advil, Aleve, and golfers popping all these. They're not stocked. They're out after the first hour. They're out of it. Exactly. People are just... I want to talk about pain and injury and those nasty things because a lot of people listening to this are playing with some type of discomfort. And I've gone through the TPI screening a couple of times now. I was dealing with some lower back discomfort and and kind of threw the kitchen sink at it and luckily it's gone. But can we talk about the screening more in the context of what can we do to help golfers who have that lower back pain or whatever? I know pain and injury is complicated. Well, movement screening is hard to predict injury, but once you have an injury, it's very... Exactly. So let, let's talk about that. Like for the golfers who are hurting right now and they don't want to hurt anymore, talk to them about the screening and then what they can do based on that data they receive, that, you know, whether it's strength training, mobility, that, that whole, I'd like to go in that direction. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire. So it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. 
post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. I like to move off the screen for a second first and just go back. So if you're an average golfer out there and you're having pain, something that I've written down on a napkin, a piece of paper a million times is our philosophy of how your body's supposed to work. And I like to walk you through that real quick because then it'll answer all these questions with pain and injury that I think people get wrong. In TPI, we try and make very complicated things easy, right? So I love to use simple analogies. And to me, one of my favorite analogies is, or let's say oversimplifications is the human body, right? The human body is the most complex organism on the planet Earth. So to make it simple is very difficult. But if you think of your body as joints, a series of joints, wrist joint, your elbow joint, your shoulder joint, your spine joint, your hips are joint. And we classify each joint in your body as either a mobile joint or a stable joint, right? Something really, really important starts to emerge. Now, let me, let me explain what makes a joint a mobile joint or what makes a joint a stable joint. If you take your wrist, right? Take any joint in your body. Every joint in your body is designed to move in three planes of motion. Like my wrist can flex and extend. It can hinge up and down. It can rotate. Every joint can do this right? Your shoulder can do this. Your hip can do this. Your ankle can do this. And if a joint likes to move in all three planes, we call it a mobile joint. But there are certain joints like the knuckle on your finger, okay? I can move it side to side. I can twist it a little bit, but I really don't want you to move it side to side. I don't want you to twist it. It likes to flex and extend. That's what it was designed for, right? So this is a joint that can move in all three planes, but I really don't want you to move it in all three planes. I just want you to flex and extend. We call those stable joints, like your knee. Your knee likes to flex and extend. Your elbow likes to flex and extend. Your shoulder likes to move in all three planes. That's a mobile joint, right? So why do we classify mobile and stable? And here's why. And there's so many cool things we can branch off of this once you understand this. And usually, like I said, I draw it with all my patients that have pain. Okay, if I look at your foot, your foot's stable. Ankle, like we just said, very mobile. Knee, flexing it, it's stable. Your hip, very mobile, moves in all three planes. Your lower back, your lumbar spine, the facets, They are designed just like your knuckle on your finger. They just flex and extend. They don't like to rotate. They don't like to side bend. That's a stable joint. Your thoracic spine, they're actually designed very differently. They can side bend, they can flex and extend, and they can actually rotate. Your thoracic spine is very mobile. Your scapula, your shoulder blade, it just likes to go like side to side in front to back. It doesn't like the wing, or so it's a stable joint. Shoulder's mobile. Elbow, like your knee, is stable. Wrist is mobile. So if I say that again, foot is stable. Ankle is mobile. Knee is stable. Hip is mobile. Lower back is stable. Thoracic spine is mobile. Notice the body's an alternating pattern of stable joints connected by mobile joints. And we always say, that's how you were designed, right? When you play golf, you should be moving from your mobile joints and stabilizing from your stable joints, right? So when if you think about in the golf swing, as I rotate, my ankle is going to move a little bit. My hip is going to move. My thoracic spine is going to move. My shoulders are going to move. Those are my mobile joints. At the same time, my knee is going to be stable. My lumbar spine is going to be stable. My scapula is going to be stable. Those are your stable joints. If that pattern is broken and you don't have these mobile, stable, mobile, stable, bad stuff happens. Now, bad stuff could be 
I've got a problem with face the path. Bad stuff could be, I've got a herniated disc, right? So it, it could be injury, it could be performance. Either one of those bad. Let's talk about you, lower back, okay? When you say my lower back hurts playing golf, that is a stable joint that's supposed to be stable and not do excessive rotation or side bend. What you're telling me is I'm probably trying to make it a mobile joint. I'm trying to make it do more work. And it's usually because the mobile joints above and below aren't doing their job. So anytime somebody comes in and says, my lower back hurts, I say, what are you doing about it? And they're like, well, I'm doing all these core activation and I'm doing these lumbar injections. I'm like, okay, you just told me your lumbar spine is probably doing all the work. That's not the cause. That's the result, right? Let's try and figure out why your lumbar spine is acting like a mobile joint. And normally when we do a movement screen, we'll see, like you said, John, both hips are tight, right? There we go. Now, okay, now I see that the pattern's broken. If the hips don't like the move, the lumbar spine tries to do the work. And if your thoracic spine's tight, well, now the lower, lower back has no chance because the mobile joint above and below don't work. It has to do all the work. Our goal is always to reestablish the normal pattern, mobile, stable, mobile, stable. And then you take away the cause of the pain, then the lower back will rehab and get better. And this could be, hey, my knee hurts when I play golf. Okay, check the ankle and the hip above and below. Make sure the mobile joints are moving. If the knee is doing lateral motion, it wasn't designed to do that, right? And no wonder it hurts. That makes sense? Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, what I did to I, the, the mobility stuff every day was helpful. But honestly, I, I think it was, I just started, I was always lifting weights on my upper body and I neglected my lower body. For the girls? Is that what you're telling me right now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you know what it is? I, I couldn't stand dealing with the micro tears in the beginning, not walking for a few days, but I finally committed to it. And, and honestly, just doing like squats, deadlifts and lunges combined with the mobility stuff and the yeah, lower backs feeling better than ever. Yeah, so you just said I, I created a little more stability in my core, mobility in my hips and my spine, and that, that's how you do. That's how you fix these. It's not it's not brain surgery to figure out why this happens. But always remember, in my experience, whatever's hurting, unless you had an acute trauma, you know, if somebody punches you in the face, the reason your face hurts is because somebody punched you in your face, right? <laughs> if your shoulder just starts to hurt. The first thing I'm thinking is it's doing too much work. Why is it working so much? Why are the other parts around it not doing their job? And that's what we look for in the movement screen. What's very common? I mean, I'm assuming tight hips are very common, but let's say someone finds out that they have one of these things. Are you, what are some common solutions? Are you sending them to the weight room? Are you sending them on mobility stuff? Yeah. Most common hips and thoracic spine being tight for sure. Those are the two that are the biggest ones. Then throw in ankle and shoulder and be secondary to those. So here's how we attack this. Like I said earlier, if you fail a movement screen and we go, oh, your hips are tight, right? Normally you have two choices, right? We can actually attack this in the gym, try and get this better, more flexible, stronger, or we can coach around it in your swing. We actually usually recommend to do both, right? So it might take us a month to make some big changes in the gym, which isn't a long time, but in the meantime, I don't want you to hurt yourself, so we might do some swing modifications. So I always want to make sure that the swing isn't creating, you're not trying to do something you can't physically do, which can create part of the problem. And at the same time, let's make it easier for you to do what you want to do in the gym, right? So for joints, like let's say the hip is a problem or the spine's a problem, thoracic spine. If it's a joint problem, because there's mobility is usually caused, we can talk for two hours about causes of mobility restrictions, but <laughs> there are three basic categories of mobility problems. You've got mechanical causes like joints and tissue. You've got chemical causes like inflammation or ischemia, lack of blood flow. Those are, those are big problems in the golf world. And then there's neurological problems, which is kind of like your brain is guarding and, and shutting down different parts. And all three of those are big deals. And we, we look for all those, but the most common is mechanical causes, joints and tissue being tight. 
if there's a joint restriction, like your hip joint is tight or your, let's say your rib cage is tight, we always go after strategy number one, which is, it's usually the money move that we always go after first. And it's called distraction. We try and distract the joint. Like if you've ever, like if your knuckle's stuck and you pull your finger and you hear a little pop, right? That's distraction. So any type of exercises that help open the joint, create more space inside the joint, you're doing some great stuff there. Like you said, you're doing a lot of your 90-90 stuff. A lot of that stuff, you're also trying to distract the hip at the same time. That distraction is the key on those, right? If you just sit there, it might help. But if you distract and you feel like you're creating these long axis tractions, moving your, trying to, like I said, dislocate your hip or obviously feel like you're trying to unscrew your hip from the socket, we get huge changes. Like if your rib cage is restricted and your thoracic spine, you can't turn your shoulders. One of the easiest, simplest things you can do is huge chest breathing. Like take a big breath in through your nose, try and expand your rib cage, which is distraction from the inside out. You're trying to rip your rib cage apart. And most people, if you just take your hands behind your head and you try and rotate to the right and see how far you can go, come back and take 10 huge breaths, the biggest breaths you've ever had in your life. Try and expand your rib cage as much as you want and try and rotate again. Most people will pick up 20% just by doing distraction in the rib cage, right? So joint techniques, and, and we have hundreds of them on our mytpi.com on our exercise library of different drills that we attack joints with distraction, first and foremost. If it's tissue, the most common tissue that is restricted is something called fascia. Now, we used to say that back in 20 years ago, anatomy, we didn't even think fascia mattered. Now, it's one of the most important things that we know about. It's the white part of the steak. That's fascia, right? We have all of that throughout our whole body. We used to think like your hamstring would get tight. We now have tons of evidence to show that muscles don't even get tight, that you don't, there is no such thing as tight hamstrings. It's usually the fascia that's laying on top of the hamstring or over your calf that is creating these tension bands. And it's changed the way we do exercises. Like you say, this 90-90, 90-90 is putting your body into a position where it tractions the entire fascial line, right? And when we get those fascial lines under stretch, usually you hold those stretches for 60 seconds to 90 seconds because fascia takes time for it to release and it can make huge, huge differences, right? So we have a program called ELDOA, E-L-D-O-A, which is a French acronym by a guy by the name of Guy Boyer on our MyTPI store there that it's just all fascial stretching, right? So we attack mobility with fascial stretching and joint distraction. Those are usually the ones that are going to make the biggest impact. We've had this conversation with Mike Carroll before, but I'd love to hear your take on it. Is resistance training more bang for your buck in terms of mobility, right? Because you know, people don't have unlimited time. Some people are saying, like, well, I'm not going to do a 20, 30-minute mobility routine every morning. If they went to the gym and did strength training, is that mobility as well? Are you getting like a, a double effort there or, or do you consider them separate? How much time you want to talk about this one? <laughs> well, yeah, just the difference between like if I'm doing squats... No, it's a great one. I, like I said, I can talk about this for three hours. So, okay. So strength training, let's talk. So let me make sure everybody knows this. If you go to the Olympics and you look at Olympic athletes, this one's kind of obvious. Which athletes do you think are the most flexible? The bodybuilders. <laughs> I, I would say the gymnasts. <laughs> the gymnasts are the bodybuilders. <laughs> gymnasts is number one. Well, John, you're close. So gymnasts is number one. Usually gymnasts, divers, because of the positions they kind of get themselves in are, are contortionists <laughs> almost. But then what most people don't know is what you just said, John, is number three is your Olympic weightlifters, right? They're literally one of the top five most flexible athletes in the Olympics because they actually have to get underneath the bar. They can't lift the bar up, right? So people think if I strength train, I'm going to lose flexibility. Well, the highest level of weightlifting in the world is one of the most flexible athletes on the planet, right? 
So what's really important is when you strength train, you should not be losing length or you're doing strength training wrong. So you want to maintain length with strength, which is very, very, very important because if you, like we said, that you want to create that force and that velocity, that power component, right? And your muscles create part of the power, right? So if I, if I talk about how your muscles create power, your muscles are layers of proteins, right? And these proteins basically stack on top of each other like bricks. And you have these little tentacles that hang down and little tentacles that hang up and these tentacles connect with each other. And when a muscle contracts, those little tentacles create the contraction. If you stretch a muscle, actually more of these tentacles get in contact with each other and you can have more power in your muscle. Now, if you go too far, you can disconnect these. That's where hypermobility can be a problem. But there's a sweet spot where you want to stretch your muscles where you get maximum power. At the same time, when you stretch, you have connective tissue like we talked about, fascia, ligaments, tendons. Those are all connective tissue. Those are like rubber bands. All you got to do, they're the free energy. Your muscles don't have to do anything. You just stretch them and then create elastic power, right? So if you get stronger and you get the muscle bigger, but you can't stretch it anymore, you just defeated the whole mechanism of how power is created and it makes no sense. Like bodybuilders, if you're just trying to make your biceps look big and your chest look big, they're usually some of the least powerful people on the planet where Olympic weightlifters are some of the most powerful, right? So you want to be able to maintain the length of the muscle and the strength at the same time. So strength training could be one of the most effective ways to increase mobility if you know what you're doing. Well, it feels like you're going through a bigger range of motion. Like when you're doing a squat or a shoulder press or something like if you're doing it properly, like the the range of motion that you have to put your body through. Like I was working with Mike Carroll, I was sending him some videos of my squats, just doing air squats in the beginning. And like, you know, my, my feet would flare out. I was making all these compensations because I just couldn't get my body to do it. Whereas a year later, me doing it and progressing with more weight, like I'm getting deeper and, and there's more flexibility there. Again, you're doing it smart. You've got somebody coaching you doing stuff. And it's just, it's amazing on how many people do the opposite. They go do strength training and then they they become, they can't even move. And I'm like, great, you're stronger. You're now least power, worse Worse power than before you started strength training. So it's just really important to make sure you maintain that strength because I, I feel like a lot of people do that backwards. Well, you had a video that I watched that was really interesting about Rory McIlroy because a lot of people, I think they look at his work in the weight room to try and point out something while he's not getting better. And you had a really interesting video on why he had lower back issues when he was younger because he was he's a small guy. He's maybe an inch taller than me. He's 5'9". When you see him in person, he's not a very big person. But the video I saw is that by adding mass to his body, he was protecting his lower back because he was whipping so fast. So talk a little bit about that. I thought that was an interesting... Yeah. Well, let's talk about... So how strong do you have to be? Okay. That's that's probably the question you're getting to here. And we, we actually have some pretty neat testing devices at TPI where we can test every muscle in your body isometrically. And we can compare you to your database of PGA Tour, LPGA Tour, and, and see which muscles are a problem. And I asked this question to one of our biomechanics advisory board members, Dr. Robert Grober, one of the smartest men on the planet. Oh, Bob Grober was a former playing partner of mine. So it's a big coincidence. So we had an episode with Tor Tempo and he's done research for them. But I played I played golf randomly with Bob for four or five years. So I know him. <laughs> he's a great guy. He used to be a physics professor at Yale. Now he, he works some, with Wall Street and all that kind of stuff. But I asked him that question one time. I was like, I'm trying to calculate how strong you have to be. I have, you know, like I said, I test NFL players and MLB players, and I, I can see they're definitely stronger than our PGA Tour players. But I'm like, not like our guys are weak. The question is how strong. And he said to me, he goes, 
well, that should be pretty easy to calculate because you just you know what the centripetal acceleration is, and we can just convert that by the mass of the club and take that with gravity, and we can tell you. And I'm like, okay, slow down, Bob. What, what do I do? That sounds like something he would say. He's very smart. <laughs> yeah. So what he taught me, which I think is really really cool, is he said, listen, centripetal acceleration is what the club is creating when it goes around in a circle, right? So if you're swinging a club in a circle, whether it's a baseball bat, a hockey stick, or a golf club, it wants to fly away from the center. So as you're swinging, you're pulling against the centripetal acceleration just to keep it in a circle. And he said, centripetal acceleration, the formula is V squared divided by R. So the velocity squared divided by the radius in which it's rotating around, right? So he said, why don't we calculate this? And he goes, give me a driver speed. I said, all right, let's just take a basic driver speed of 100 miles an hour. He said, perfect. So he converts it to meters per second and he does all the math and he goes, so he goes, that's about 119 G's is how fast the club is spinning. And I go, okay, so how does that help me? He goes, well, if we divide that by, if we multiply that times the mass of the club and with gravity, he goes, that turns out to 89 pounds. And I go explain, Bob, and he goes, the club is rotated for a hundred, for a club to move hundred miles an hour, it is creating an equivalent of 89 pounds of centripetal acceleration. So you have to pull back at 89 pounds to keep it going on a circle, or it will pull you out of the circle to make you stand up or early extend. So we put a we put a, a cable crossed, 89 pounds, and I just took my lead hand and I just held it. And I was like, man, that's a lot, that's a lot more weight than people think, just to keep a hundred mile an hour club going in a circle. And I go, so I'd like to see what it feels like to be Jason Zubak or Justin James or Kyle Berkshire. Like instead of 100 miles an hour, let's do it for 150 mile an hour club at speed, right? Well, remember, it's V squared divided by R. Right. So when you do that, it's not 89 pounds anymore. It's now 198 pounds. Right. And with, it's something that I've always noticed is on our long drive tour players, we have our weight stacks. We have a, we use a life fitness dual cable cross and there's never enough weight on the stack. I mean, I can go all the way to the bottom of the stack and our guys can just do a pull and I can almost stand on the weight stack and they can still do a pull. Like pull strength is very, very important for developing power and speed in the golf. And I'm like, well, now it makes sense because I'll tell you right now, there's not a lot of people that if I put 198 pounds on the cable cross, you could hold this in a, in a golf posture. And I'm like, you're not strong enough. You can't swing at 150 miles an hour. The club will dominate you. You won't dominate the club, right? And it's one of the best arguments of why you've got to get stronger is if you want the club to go faster and you want to be able to maintain posture and keep the club moving in a circle, it's going to require some power, especially with pull strength, right? So if you can, bench press is, is pushing is okay, but pulling is where you want to get stronger if you're going to go into the gym. That relates a, a lot to the, I think there's a paper by someone called Mura on parametric acceleration and talking about, they said that the average tall pro, I think, was pulling with about 140 pounds of force at impact. Most people are trying, trying to shove their hands down and they don't realize. And when you look at the body motions now of professionals with that in mind, you can see they're really kind of shrugging their shoulders a little bit. Look at the vertical ground reaction force. It's the highest ground reaction force that we're looking at, and it's helping counterbalance. They're not only jumping, they're jumping backwards to counterbalance that pull. Because like I said, 100 miles an hour is 89 pounds of pull. Average on tour is 117 miles an hour. Again, do the V squared and you'll see it's, it's going to be well over 100 pounds that they're pulling backwards. Exactly. And this even goes into things like lots of amateurs talk about, well, I need to keep my left arm straight. And you look at professionals and yeah, they do have their left arm straight. But what they don't realize is there's a tug of war going on between that lead shoulder trying to pull back as hard as you can. And then the centripetal. And when you pull that lead shoulder up, that's what creates positive attack angle. Yeah. Right. I mean, a lot of people think, well, it's by side bend or like it's that pull that creates the bottom going up, which optimizes all your launch characteristics as well. 
Yeah, and there's this like tug of war that actually straightens the arm for for you know the club is pulling one way and you're pulling the other way with your body, and so it's not not necessarily a conscious thing. Look at Justin James from the long drive. Look at Scotty Scheffler on PJ Tour when they on their downswing, they're jumping, they're jumping backwards. That's to try and help pull backwards to keep the club going in that centripetal acceleration. Very very important for trying to hit. I think that's one of the mistakes that even I've made early on in my career with with things like early extension is the route of trying to completely get rid of extension, you know, keep people in their posture through impact, and then they're losing that upward force. Yeah, early extension is just proof you don't know how to use the ground, right? Because if you're actually pushing from the lead ball of your foot and jumping backwards, there's no way you can go forward. It's impossible. Like you, if you're early extending, you are not counterbalancing pull strength with your lower body. You're trying to do it with your upper body and it's not strong enough. So is there like a, I know it's it's so hard to group like quote unquote, the average golfer and what they should do. But for people who are always, I think people get confused and overwhelmed. Like I always get questions on Twitter. Like I say like, oh, I'm lifting weights. I'm doing this. Like what's your routine? I'm like, I'm just doing like bread and butter like stuff. I'm doing shoulder presses, bicep curls, like squats, like I have one of those tonal machines, which is very cool and leads me through it. And I love it, but I'm still doing the basic stuff. It's nothing fancy. I used to do it with dumbbells and, it, and the impact has been phenomenal. If you had to say to people listening to this, like maybe some people aren't going to get the TPI screening. I, I think most people should. What, 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 what is the basic laundry list of things that golfers should do? Yeah. So first of all, like I said, everybody's unique. Everybody should have a customized workout to themselves. But it's very rare that we won't tell you to do some type of pushing pulling, chopping, and lifting, right? So, you know, if I'm chopping down, I'm lifting up, I'm pulling and pushing. Those are all, with your trunk rotating, stable base, stable lower body. There's split stance, square stance. So a push, pull, chop, and a lift, you're going to see those in most core players' repertoire of their strength. And how much do you push and pull? Whatever you can maintain posture in, right? Like jack the weight up, but don't don't sacrifice your posture. So you want to be able to maintain posture and get as heavy as you can, in my opinion. Full range of motion throughout all those, right? And then I would do some type of hip hinge, like a deadlift, squat, one of, one of those, probably a deadlift from the blocks, probably these, but just make sure you're using your glutes. And remember, I'm not trying to win the Olympic lifting at the Olympics. I want good strength, but I don't need a thousand pounds on there. That's not what we're looking for. I like single leg squats. I hate to say it, but like whether you elevate a foot on a bench behind you and you do single leg with dumbbells on either side, I feel like there's a lot of cool stuff that happens with the ground reaction forces when you're doing that. Those are your basic strength ones. If I were to keep going on, uh, I would probably get more into power than strength. I'd probably go into some of our medicine ball stuff, really focusing on ground reaction forces. I'll give you for you guys that are listening that you're like, well, what are those power exercises? Again, on our website, on mytpi.com, there's a place that says, it says improve my game, drills and exercises. There's an advanced filter. You can just type in ground reaction forces and you'll see Justin James walking you through a bunch of power drills. I love those medicine ball drills. You can put in chops and it'll show you all the chops. Put in lifts, it'll put in lifts. Pulls, it'll put in the pulls. You can find a ton of them over there. And it's not like everyone's like, well, what's the right one? No, no, do all of them. Do like switch it up. Do a variety of them. I don't like doing the same exercise over and over again. I think variety is the spice of life here and it, that applies to the, the weight room. And remember, the weight room is not for competition, right? That's what I always tell my players. Listen, I was just had this conversation with Will Zalatoris, right? You know, he's in his early 20s. I'm like, name another sport that you can make millions until you're 65, even maybe higher. I'm like, 
We're not trying to talk about how to keep you going for another 10 years. We're talking about trying to keep you going for another 40 years, right? So I would say it takes a lifetime to create a great golfer. It takes one stupid rep in the gym to ruin everything, right? So the gym is not a competitive place. It's a place to help enhance and recovery. You got to spend tons of time on recovery. And that's how you increase your longevity over the sport. Any tips for like the mobility stuff? I'm doing 90-90. I do some hamstring stuff. I got my foot up against the wall, the quad thing. It's been helpful for me. What do you have on the site you can direct people to and, and any thoughts there? Actually, can you explain the difference between mobility and flexibility as, as well for our listeners? People think those are the same words, but when you say flexibility, most people think muscle flexibility. Mobility, I think, is inclusive of joints, tissue, chemical problems. So mobility is more the global, right? Flexibility, for some reason, is, is when people say, oh, there's a flexibility problem, they're thinking muscle. And again, just get that out of your head. Think, think mobility as, they both mean the same thing, but think mobility is a global term. And like I said, hell, you could have Lyme disease. You could have got bitten by a tick. And one of the number one signs is joint stiffness and pain. And you don't need a stretch, you need an antibiotic, right? So there's tons of things that can create problems with mobility. But like I said, the most common are these mechanical causes. And John, to answer your question, my favorite uh, distraction one in the hip, uh, I think on our site, it's called long sitting hip windshield wipers. If you put hip windshield wipers, you'll see long sitting. And it's basically where you just sit tall with your legs out in front of you, feet spread apart, and you take your feet and you just try and windshield wipe. Oh, you're putting the knees in. Yeah. At the same time, you're trying to distract, take your heel and try and drive it away from you. So you're trying to unscrew your hip from the socket. That's the key. If you just sit there and move your legs back and forth, that doesn't do anything. I do the one where you're like rolling over from side to side too. You can do rolling patterns too, but I like I like the long sitting, the traction, then I'd go to the 99s. And that usually makes a huge, huge jump in hip mobility. And mobility can be a strength issue as well. Lots of times, you know, someone can't achieve a certain range of motion because their body's kind of protecting itself. Maybe it understands intuitively the muscle that I'm not strong here. If I go there, I'm going to tear or something like that, right? So that's the neurological. Remember I said there's three three causes of mobility problems. There's mechanical, which is tissue and joint. There's chemical, like we talked about, inflammation, ischemia. And then there's neurological. You're talking about a neurological one now where the brain's actually not letting you do something because it could be a previous injury where it doesn't think it's safe over there. So it says, nope, you're not going there anymore, right? So those are real and those happen all the time. And a lot of times, one of the best ways to break those is to prove to the body that it's safe over there. And strength training can be one of the best ways to do that. Like I always, like when I say mobility, you know, it's one of the most important things. I think people think, oh, that means strength uh, stretching is better than strength training. Strength training is one of the most effective ways to get mobility, right? We just need the mobility back. So if someone wanted to take it a step further and get customized advice, you know, so you have, you're up to like about 20,000 people who've been certified. Also 27,000. Yeah. It, it literally, if you go on to mytpi.com at the top, it'll say, find an expert, put in your zip code, and you'll find somebody in your area right there where they can take you through a TPI screen. It literally takes 10 minutes or less. And in that 10 minutes, they can put it into our app. The computer takes all your data and basically it'll, it'll predict your swing, what your swing looks like in a scary way. And it also give the practitioner advice. And then of course the practitioners have tons of tools and weapons. They can build you an entire workout virtually. They can give it to you via the app or they can walk you through it. And then I'm telling you like, Five minutes a day can make a huge impact. I think people think, oh, I got to go spend an hour in the gym. I mean, what if I showed you five minutes that could change your backswing? I mean, why would you not do that? That's one of the 
things I was hoping you would say. I, I'm always love working out and it's something I wish I had done. Yeah, I've been on and off for years and I've gotten back into it and I feel better than ever. And people think like, oh, I got to spend seven hours a week doing this. And like, no, it- no, not at all. Well, here's the thing. exercise is addictive. So once you start doing it. Yeah, yeah. If it starts feeling better, so you want to do more. Exactly. Hopefully. So I'm always trying to accommodate the people who like to do stuff on their own versus if they were guided by a professional. So if someone did go through the screening and they're like, all right, I'm going to work with a TPI certified trainer in a gym, what would they be doing differently in terms of like the custom route versus going the more like generic bread and butter stuff? What would be the advantage there? First of all, number one, what you just said, your time of workout probably goes down by 80%, right? So again, it's the sniper versus throwing grenades, right? So if you don't know what's wrong, you got to do everything, right? Because what if you miss the most important thing? So I got to work on ankle mobility, hip mobility, spine mobility, shoulder mobility, wrist mobility. I got to work on lumbar stability. I got to do all of them because I don't know what the problem is. But if you just told me, hey, dude, it's your left hip. Okay, so let's, let's, let's focus on that first. That's what I'm going to do every day. If I have time, I'll do the rest. If not, this is going to make me play better, right? So to me, efficiency and working out is also making sure I attack my problems first, right? Now, I also like to put in your superpower too. Like if your superpower is your right leg drive strength, well, I always like to work on my superpower too. I think a lot of players make this mistake in golf is they're always trying to figure out where their weakness is and they, they neglect their superpower and now everything's average instead of having that superpower. So I always want, same thing in the gym, you know, if you're really flexible, don't lose that, right? That's really important, right? So we'll do some of those things. But individuality, number one, make sure you're doing the right thing. Number two is somebody guiding you to make sure you're doing the exercise properly. Number three is it shortens your your workout time exponentially. Not a little, a lot. That's the main reason. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> and you think about it, like if you're working out for an hour right now and I can show you how to accomplish everything in 20 minutes and I saved you 40 minutes per workout, how much time did I just give you this year? Sure. Just start doing the math. <laughs> I'm all for... Big gains in small amount of time. That's what I build my life around now. Least effective dose. That's the key. I was going to talk about, is there is there a conspiracy by Titleist? You talked earlier about how, you know, the average number of balls lost is five by a golfer. And so <laughs> it's greatly beneficial. That's to, our secret mission to screw everybody up to make it <laughs> seven balls. Not, not so good. <laughs> well, what I was saying is if golfers hit it farther, then they're going to lose more balls. So maybe there's a conspiracy there with all the speed stuff. But is there anything that you've seen that relates to performance more or accuracy that we can correlate from the body movement? Actually, what's kind of scary, Adam, is most of the research shows the farther you hit it, the more accurate you are. So to most people, if you hit the ball farther, usually you're out of the trouble and you actually perform better. But Is there anything that you've seen either body-wise, training-wise that can relate to things like accuracy, left to right dispersion or consistency or is there not, not a lot on, on that at the moment? Yeah, no, no, no. I think that's very important, right? So to me, everything we talked about does both. It's the double threat, right? It allows you to get into the positions that you and your coach are trying to get into, which should allow you to deliver the club on a more consistent path and more make better center face, square face contact. The distance, the strength and power just allows you to put a little more oomph behind it. But I don't disconnect those two, right? I don't feel like that if we increase your power, that your accuracy is going to go down. Actually, I, we, we, we see quite the contrary, that a lot of times the accuracy goes up. I know people think, oh, I'm just going to swing like crazy and erratic and it's going to go all over the place. The cool thing about what we do is I always say is it's like sneaky power, which to me is you don't even, you feel like you didn't even swing hard and the ball's going farther. 
that's the best way to increase your like here's a way like you know people do these over speed like super speed and you do all these we have a whole series of stuff that we do for our long drive tour and for getting power and we do all kinds of crazy swings and do stuff to me the best way to do this is you take your driver get a launch monitor and do a your cruising speed like okay i gotta hit the fairway this is cruising speed and you get your get your club speed right let's say your club speed's 100 miles an hour right then if you want to get faster right but not lose accuracy which is what everybody should want to do is go do your crazy swings do your over speed do your super speed stuff take the club back farther lift your lead heel and basically try and get the ball to go as fast as possible right we play a game called three strikes where we take the launch monitor and let's say you're 100 miles an hour and then you try and do something stupid, like something that you would never, ever even consider doing on the golf course, right? Whether it's stepping, running, whatever, I don't care. Try and hit as hard as you can. Imagine it's a contest for a million dollars. You swing. Let's say it goes 105, right? Ball goes sideways. You don't care. The club goes 105. Just get the club faster. We keep going. We, keep, we tee up a ball and we try it again. If it's 105 or higher, you keep going. So let's say it goes to 106. You keep going. And it goes 107, you keep going. If it gets back below 170, as it goes up, that's your new floor. If it ever drops down, you get a strike. Take a, take a 30 second break, come back and try it again. So if you're up to 107 and you have one strike, you swing again. If it's 107, you keep going. 108, you keep going. Now 108's your number. If it goes below 108, that's strike two. As soon as you get strike three, you take a one minute break and you're done with your speed crazy stuff. And now I always say, okay, let's get all that crap out of your brain right now. Let's go hit the fairway again. Let's just do your cruiser. Most people will go back and do their cruiser. They'll feel like they're not even swinging. And instead of 100 miles an hour, it's 102 now. That's how I like to increase speed, right? So basically, it's sneaky speed. Like, I feel like I'm like going slow motion and it's faster than it's ever been. That's what we like to do. I'm glad you brought up swing speed because I was going to bring it up. We talk about it with a lot of different people on the show. And I just want to give like a a well-rounded discussion on it. We've had super speed on. We've had the guys from the stack on. I've used... I've gotten swing speed from the overspeed method. However, you had a really good video that I saw is determining when a golfer should train for strength and when they should train for speed. I think I got tapped out on everything I could get by doing the crazy swings and I kind of plateaued, which is normal. And then I ac- I believe I was able to access more speed by getting stronger in my lower body and elsewhere. Like I think that's an interesting topic is Sometimes it's from strength. Sometimes it's from the overspeed stuff, a little bit of both. Can you educate people on that a little bit? Remember, three ways hit the ball farther, right? Power, which is force and velocity. Another way to say that is strength and speed, right? So people that are very strong are not very powerful. People who are very fast are not very powerful. But people who are strong and fast are very powerful, right? So you want to do both of these, right? So that's why Rory's at 188 ball speed now. 100%. <laughs> yeah, so what we do at TPI is we measure your power. We first measure power. If power's down, to improve that, I need to know, is this a strength problem or a speed problem? Because again, if you're applying speed to a strength problem, it's not going to make any difference, right? So what we do is at TPI, we do three tests. We do a vertical jump in inches. We do a sit up and throw. You lay on your back, hold onto a medicine ball with your knees bent, and you sit up and throw like a soccer throw in from your back. And then we do a seated chest pass. Now, we use a medicine ball that's one pounds per 20 pounds of body weight. So if you weigh 200 pounds, it's 10 pounds, right? If you weigh 100 pounds, it's, it's five pounds. So it's one pound per 20 pounds of body weight. And it's really, really cool on how this power testing plays out. Let's say you look at the average PGA Tour player. What's the PGA Tour? PGA Tour player vertical jump is 23 on average. 23 inches is their average vertical jump, right? LPGA, it's 18. Okay, so 18 inches LPGA, 23 for PGA Tour. Your sit-up and throw. Sit-up and throw, 
for average PGA Tour players, 22. 22 feet is how far they can sit up and throw. On the LPGA, it's 18 feet, right? Chest pass, sitting on a chair, throwing that medicine ball, it's 22 feet for PGA Tour, and it's 18 feet for women. So the women's easy. 18-inch vertical jump, 18-foot sit up and throw, and 18-foot chest pass. So it's 18 across the board, whether it's inches or feet. That's what you should, that's what average power for the LPGA. PGA Tour, it's 23, 22, 22, right? So lower body is just a little, little stronger, the, the vertical jump, a little stronger than the core, the sit up and throw, and the upper body, the chest pass. Now, here's what we do. If I, just the simplest way to do this is if you have the ability to test yourself and to do this, right? And like when I say like chest pass, you sit in a chair, you throw the ball, we measure where the ball bounces to your chest. And when you sit up and throw, you sit up and you throw the ball wherever it bounces to your chest when you're sitting tall. And we measure that distance. If your power is below, let's say average PJ Tour or LPJ, we're going to say you've got lower power. You've got, place, you've got power that you can improve, right? So if your vertical jump is 18 and you're a male and we know the average on tour is 23, I'm like, hey, there's a power problem with your lower body. If your sit up and throw is 18 feet for a male and we know the average is 22 for a male, we're going, hey, your core, that's kind of a pulling, your core's power's a little down. If your chest pass is 18 and we know the men are 22, then we'd say your upper body power is a little down. So we lose the chest pass for your upper body power, the sit up and throw for your core power, and the vertical jump for your lower body power. So now I know like which body parts have power and which ones don't. Now this is really, really important. If you walk in and you say, hey, listen, Greg, I've, I just got to hit the ball farther or else I'm going to quit the game. Everybody's out driving me. I'm done. This is ridiculous. I've been to 12 coaches. There's something, they just can't figure it out. And I go, okay, well, what's your club head speed right now? And you go, okay, my club head speed's 100 miles an hour, right? And I go do your power testing, right? And I look at your power testing and let's say you're like a 13-inch vertical, a 14-inch sit up and throw, and a 14 test pass. I'm going, think of this. Okay, I'm going to do some funny math here. Okay, this is, this is the right way. Here's funny math. Let's say your, your vertical jump is 16 inches. What's average on tour? I'm testing you guys. 23. Very good. So if you had 16 inches, right? If I take 16 divided by 23, you're 69% of our PGA Tour. Well, average PGA Tour club head speed is 117 miles an hour. So if I multiply that times 117, you're right now, your lower body is powerful enough for 81 miles an hour, right? It's basically, you're literally 30% below PGA Tour. If you said to me, my swing right now is 100 miles an hour, I'll be like, well, hell, that's way stronger than I think your lower body is capable of doing. You can go to as many instructors as you want. This is not a swing problem. This is a power, you your engine's not big enough. Like you're already above the size of your engine by exponential points right now. You're just going to break apart, Right. So I'm always like, I'm like an insurance raider. And I'm going, I'm only going to insure you to 81 miles an hour. You just told me you're going 100. I go, things are going to fall apart unless we get a bigger engine. I do this for the lower body, the core, and the upper body. And you can see really quickly, like some people will be like, man, your lower body's rated for 120 miles an hour. Your upper body's rated for 120 miles an hour. And your core is rated for 60. It's like an anchor holding you back. Here's where we need your power. Now, once I've identified if you have a physical power problem, but if you came into me and you said, I swing 100 miles an hour and I check your vertical jump. Okay, let's say we do your vertical jump. And let's say your vertical jump is 25 inches, right? Well, now if I take 25 divided by 23, you're 8% higher than the PGA Tour. So if I multiply that times 117, I'm like, you should be able to go over 125 miles an hour right now. So I'm going, this isn't an engine problem. You need better coaching. Somebody's not teaching you how to use your lower body. And this is how we differentiate between, is this a swing instructor problem or is this a gym problem, right? Now, if it's a gym problem and it's a power problem, like we said before, now, John, I got to figure out, is this a strength problem or a speed problem? Because all I know is there's a power problem. So what we do is we test strength next. So what we do is we do three simple tests for strength. We do a split squat, 
where we take two dumbbells, hold like, let's say, hold two 20 pound dumbbells, you do a lunge, and you just squat down and come back up. And we say, do you think you could do this eight times? It's called a perceived eight rep max. If the player goes, yeah, I could do that, it's pretty easy. We say, good, grab 30s. We keep going, grab 40s, grab 50s until they go, no, I don't think I could do that eight times. It's very subjective to predict what you can do eight times, but it's very objective when it gets a no. Like we go until you say no. Like it's obvious when they can't do it, right? So let's say we get to the 50s and they say, I can't do it. We'll say, okay, your number's 45. We go down five pounds. Okay, we say that's what you could do eight times. It's a perceived eight rep max. Now it's really easy. Take your body weight, divide it in half. So if you weigh 200 pounds, you should be able to lift 100 pounds. That's 50 in each arm. If you can't, you have a serious strength problem with your lower body. Does that make sense? Okay, so you have to be able to lift half your body weight. So if, if you weigh 200 pounds, I need 100 pounds. So that's 50 in each hand. And you should be able to do that split squat eight times. That's not good, but that's base minimum. If you can't do that, I would tell you the reason your power is down is because you need strength. You can do all the speed you want. You need strength, right? So we would start with strength. Now, if your strength is good, but your lower body power, your vertical jump still sucks, then I'm going to go, this isn't a strength problem. This is a speed problem. We need more ballistic speed from your lower body. We use a split squat for your legs. We use a cable row. We take a cable machine and we pull with one hand, right? So we get in a square stance and we just pull. And just kind of what we were talking about before, you should be able to pull at least 30% of your body weight. If you can't pull at least 30% of your body weight, you've got a strength problem with your core. That correlates to the sit up and throw. And then we do a cable push, cable pet chest press, standing, square stance, push. You should be able to push 25% of your body weight. If you can't do any of those, that's a strength problem. If you can, it's a speed problem. Sorry for the long answer, but that's how we differentiate between speed and speed. It's got me thinking like I compete against a lot of young college kids and they're like skinny, but like they're whipping the club like really fast and they don't look very strong. They're like 130 pounds and swinging 120 and they're just crushing the ball. Do you worry about those types of players long-term in their body? I am. That's why I test them. But if they can push what we just said, not worried. But if they can't, then like, again, as an insurance rater, I'm like, you're already above what I would insure you on. And usually things are going to break down. This is like for Rory, who had somebody with so much speed for him to put on some mass. I'm like, this is probably a good thing. This is going to save him from some potential injuries in the future. Yeah, that was the, the video I'd watched. I think it was a couple of days ago where you were explaining that. You were saying that he was, was able to accelerate so fast with his body at a young age, but he was having lower back issues, correct? Again, just don't get competitive in the gym. That's where everything goes down, right? If you take these competitive athletes, they like to compete in everything, right? If you go in the gym and you're going to work out with somebody, if you're Dustin and Brooks and you're going to go work out together, it's so hard not to compete. And if you do that, you're making a massive mistake. Remember me saying this, anybody listening, <laughs> if you're going into the gym for golf. We're not going there to try and win the weightlifting championship in the Olympics. If you are, then you have to compete in the, in the weight room. But that's not what we're doing, right? We're trying to build a foundation safely because all it takes is one stupid rep to ruin everything. So it's almost like, would you say strength is like an indicator of your potential speed? And then you have to do speed training to get up there. Your body's power is your governor, right? It's going to be your limiter. Now, if your power is down, it could be either, like we said, Adam, strength or speed. Either one of those can be a, a governor or a limiter on there. So you'd want to focus on both of those, getting those as high as you can. Absolutely. I think I was guilty of that. I did a lot of strength training and 
had a lot of protein, put on 60 pounds, and my swing speed went up, I think, one or two mile an hour. <laughs> so I didn't do any speed training. Yeah, and then remember that this happens all the time. People are like, all right, this year I'm going to work out, I'm going to go get in the gym, I'm going to do all this work, and it's going to make me swing faster. Just because you make you add a sixth gear doesn't mean your swing's going to automatically swing at six speed. You actually have to now apply that to your golf swing, right? So a lot of people, like, I'll tell a story of IK Kim, when the British Open... She worked out with one of the best strength conditioning coaches, Robert Yang. She won't care me telling the story. She worked for three months in an off season. She, her club head speed's like 90 miles an hour. She's like, I got to get faster. So she's like, that's it. I'm going to go, I'm going to have Robert do whatever I want. And Robert kicked her butt and she got stronger and stronger. And she came in to see me. It was February and she was literally almost in tears going, I just wasted three months. My swing is the same speed. And I, I'm like, I, I'm on, I jump off a bridge. Right. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. I can't I go. You've been working with Robert, right? And she's like, yeah. And I go, you've got to be stronger. She goes, oh, I feel amazing. I feel stronger, more powerful. She goes, but my swing's still the same. I go, well, what have you done in your swing to swing faster? And she goes, what do you mean? I go, well, you just built a six gear. Did you, have you used it? And she's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. So I was like, so nobody's showed you how to swing faster with this new, all this work you've done? And she's like, no. So we go out and we do a little speed protocol. And she literally, I, I've never seen somebody so excited. She had a picture on the track man at 103 miles an hour, their club, which is the fastest she's ever recorded. And she was so excited, but an hour earlier, she was ready to jump off a cliff because uh, she wasted her time in the gym. So I don't want people to think that you just go in the gym and it just magically shows up. It gives you the ability now to swing faster, but you've got to do that. So is the combination of obviously increase in strength and then doing more of the overspeed, just going wild. And, and I always think of like removing the government. You've got to learn how to use that speed. And what about, uh, there's a lot of jumping and medicine ball throwing, like that type of explosive training too, where you're using the ground. Again, I use all that in the gym. Like all that stuff teaches the engine how to explode stuff, but you've got to sit down with your golf coach and you've got to try and put this into your golf swing or you're just gonna, you're gonna run the same motor program. You're just gonna go run the cruising, cruise control, and it's gonna, you're gonna go, why did, why did I work out? Working out sucks. It's not working out sucks. It's you haven't transferred it to your golf swing yet. I wish it just magically just showed up. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> do you believe that becoming just in terms of strength training outside of swing speed, do you think that reduces a golfer's chance of being injured? Or is that, again, that is more tied to? Again, if that's your problem. If that's your problem, yeah. If that's your problem, that it can do it. That's why the screening and everything comes into play. Exactly. We're, we're getting back to the same point is that, you know, you can do all these things, which are, you know, good for overall health outside of golf, obviously, like doing mobility and strength training and all that stuff. But if you want the best answer, you have to get the customized one. Here's an example. Okay. Let's say, let's say we do some genetic testing. Have you guys ever had your genes tested? No, I refuse to. My mom wants me to do it and I refuse to do it. <laughs> <laughs> You're smart because I've had mine tested three times and it's embarrassing. But okay, so <laughs> if I tested, let's say fast switch versus slow twitch fibers, okay? So fast switch, you have two types of muscles, one that are explosive, that's your fast switch, and then ones that are your stabilizers, your slow twitch. And let's say, let's say it's Adam and I competing against each other and we get a, we get a biopsy and Adam's got 40% fast switch and I've got 30. And I'm like, damn it, like he's gonna, he's gonna be me, right? So it, there's nothing I can do about this. This is parents, right? So the first question I always ask people is, do you think you can change your percent fast switch? Because you were, you were dealt this at birth. Could I get faster? What do you think, yes or no? Yeah, I would hope so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, there's a lot of people we used to believe you couldn't. The research now is clear, you can, you can influence your percent of fast switch to slow switch. Because you actually have these what are called hybrids that you can shift them towards fast switch or, or slow twitch. 
But let's say I said, all right, that's it. This year, Adam's going down. I'm going to, I'm going to work on this. I know he's got 10% more fast twitch than me. I've got 30%, but I'm going to go get on a heavy strength training program. So I do heavy strength training for one month. And then you retest me. If you re-biopsy me, biopsy me after one month, what do you think? If I do it right, if I do all my strength training perfect and I get like, I mean, I'm like, let's say I'm increasing my loads by almost 30% in one month. Where do you think my fast switch could get to in one month? What's your guess? So I started at 30%. 33? I don't know. <laughs> what do you think, Adam? Was it going to be like 60? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going low. I'm going 35, yeah. 5% <laughs> increase. Okay, well, you didn't go low enough because on average, if I started at 30 after a month of strength training, usually it's around 8%. It goes down in the toilet, right? Strength training will reduce your fast twitch fibers and take you more into slow twitch, right? So now Adam's going to outdrive me even farther, right? So you would say, what the hell? Why are we doing strength training? Because <laughs> strength training just makes you slower and more slow twitch. So if I panic and I go, oh my God, what's going on? And I just stop, I just stop weightlifting. And I just, in three months, I don't do anything. And you re-biopsy me again. So here's the magical question is, do you go back to your 30%? And the answer that we've learned from tons of research is you don't. You actually get what's called a rebound effect. And now I might actually rebound to 42, 44%, right? So strength training will reduce your fast twitch and then if you go off your strength training, which in the Olympic world we call tapering, will take you off the strength, take you into more speed development, you'll actually rebound and your fast twitch will go up. And I can actually influence my fast twitch by the way I train to beat somebody like Adam who has more fast twitch, unless he trains properly and then genetics are a bitch, he'll always win, right? But, but basically, this is like, it's really important, the phase of when you do heavy strength. Like we keep talking about, John, like, can you do strength training for mobility? And you can, but just remember, if you start doing heavy strength training, you'll reduce your power. But if you do that during the off season, and then you shift into more explosive as you get close to the season, your power will go up. And that leads to the whole, what's called periodization, which has been a problem forever with our professional golfers, because when do you have a month off, <laughs> right? So there's, there's always this problem with, the length of play these days. So for a normal golfer, I actually chose to do heavy strength training during my golf season this year. And I actually, I think I gained a few yards. I was longer later in the year and I didn't do any of the stack or super speed. I usually did that in the off season. It sounds like the smarter thing. You put that around a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I, so you would say, do the heavy, like I, I live in New York, so we're going into the winter here soon. So saying like, all right, hit the weights really hard from like, November to March, something like that. And then as you transition to the spring, then you're going to more of the explosive overspeed type training. You got it. Now you can maintain your gains. We're just not trying to increase your gains during the season. I think that's the thing I always worried about is if I stop, like sometimes I'd be so scared of lifting weights during the golf season, then I stop and then I have to go through all the micro tears again. And it's just like this year, I was just like, I'm just going to keep going and see what happens. You don't have to keep increasing. You can just maintain your gains. Yeah, just made. So you're doing like one or two like... Yeah, I think also what's really important, there's a, a great strength coach by the name of Mike Boyle. He always used to say, for every decade you're alive, that's what percent of your program should be based on mobility. And I kind of agree with him. So if you're 70 years old, 70% of your program should be mobility-based. And you'll actually feel better. You'll actually play better. If you're 90, 90% should be that. But there's a lot of research now that shows for seniors, if you get past the age of 60, 65 especially, that if you lose strength, and I'm telling you, let's say you lose 5%, the research is showing you can't get it back. Not like it's hard to get back. You can't get it back. So one of the biggest problems as we get older is if you lose strength, if it's lost, it's gone, right? So we used to say mobility is the most important as you get older. 
but maintaining your strength might be one of the most important things, right? Because we can always tr slowly try to get some mobility back, but some of the research now is showing that once strength is gone, it's gone. Really important for our senior golf. In terms of a bell curve, I know we talked a little about genetics. I know <laughs> you might not even want to go into this, but let's just open this can of worms. Oh, uh, there we go. <laughs> say some people do. Say you get a hundred, a thousand people all to do the exact same training program or or something similar. You have to do your take a hundred golfers. That's your your phrase. Yeah, I've done a thousand now. Yeah, there's going to be some people who are hyper responders to it. There's going to be a lot of people on the middle of the bell curve, and there's going to be some people who don't respond so much i was going to ask you and, and you might not even want to give the latter part to this but what what are your best success stories you know someone going from maybe 100 mile an hour to 120 and what are some of your worst <laughs> worst success stories in terms of swing speed gains you don't have to add that last one because maybe you don't keep track of that stuff no, 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 I don't go. I mean, I can tell you, I mean, we've had some crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. We had like Cameron Tregali, we trained, we still coach, but we did speed training for one year. He had the highest increase in clubhead speed in PGA Tour history in one year. What was that? Nine miles an hour, which for a PGA Tour player to go up and average nine is insane, right? I would say that most players, I'll give you an example, Charlie Hoffman. Okay, Charlie Hoffman's a great example. So Charlie's always been a very accurate ball striker, great driver of the ball, always had power. So he's never worked on speed, right? Now he's had, over the last two years, had a little disc injury and that's where he's, he's coming back from an injury. But I'm talking before this, like go, go back a couple of years. And he comes to me one day and he goes, these kids, man, they're hitting it really far now. He goes, he's almost 45 now. He's like, you think we should do some speed stuff? And I'm like, you know, it's funny. You've never asked me that. I go, I'm not even sure. Like, what's your club speed now, right? He said that his cruising speed was around 117, right? Around tour average. And I was like, what's the fastest you've ever done? He goes, honestly, Greg, he goes, I've tried to swing hard. He goes, I can sometimes get it to 119. Like that, that would be like everything I got is 119. I'm like, all right. I go, let's try something. This is 20 minutes, okay, at TPI. We go 20 minutes. I go, let's try a couple of these crazy things. And, and we go through and we do this speed stuff. And remember, his maximum was that he had, had ever seen is 119. He got to 127 in 20 minutes, right? Fast forward a month later, we did the strength training, came out, did the speed training stuff, came out, and he's all excited about it, loving this stuff. We get on the monitor, he breaks 133. So he gets to 133, right? So I'm going, I look at him and I go, are you telling me that you have 133 mile an hour clever speed and you've been playing at 117 for all these years? I'm like, what the hell are we doing, right? Like this, this, this is like, talk about, you'd be number two in driving distance on the PGA Tour, Right. And he's like, yeah, I just, not, I've never just, I've never tried to do some of this stuff. So I, I think everybody has a little governor or limiter in there that if they actually try to explore, they can usually get a lot more, but there's this fear like that they're going to lose control. And, and like I said, to me, you have to take that fear away and you have to say, what we're going to do is we're going to do crazy stuff that you would never try and do on the golf course. Like we talked about before. And it just, that sneaky speed, you just start going faster without thinking about it. And to tell you like the bad stories, I've never seen somebody do speed training get slower. I've seen people do speed training get injured though. Yeah, that's the one that everyone worries about or they or they lose their golf swing. I think that's another one people worry about. Let me tell you what I've learned on this and it's really scientific. Don't put speed on top of crap. So is that simple enough? <laughs> so if somebody has poor movement qualities, they already have injured hip or knee and they have all something, but they go, I still want to do speed stuff. You're an idiot, right? You don't put speed on top of crap. You build the foundation. If you're going to build a skyscraper, 
you make sure that that foundation is as solid as solid can be. Because if you start adding stories to a broken foundation, the, the thing's going to fall over, right? So I would say you have to prove to me you're ready for power training and speed training. And you have to put the time in for that base foundation, or I think you're crazy to do that stuff. So is there a ratio of, I know you test and you said strength is kind of the governor or limiter. Is there a ratio, can someone get faster as you were talking about earlier? If you're swinging at 100 mile an hour and you've only got the strength for 80 mile an hour, is that an indicator of injury? That's 100% the recipe of how you hurt yourself. And is there a ratio? You don't have the foundation to support that. Like what percent over if I do that funny math? Is that what you're asking? I would say if you go more than 10%, I'd be freaking out. I'd be like, man, dude, you're crazy. That's like, you're dangerous. You're, you're messing with fire. You don't have to. It's not that hard to build the foundation. You know what I mean? In my mind. A lot of what you talked about we is analogous, analogous to what we talk about in terms of skill development as well. You talk about periodization of training, physical training. You know, We do certain drills which, say for example, you're trying to hit the sweet spot. We do it where you, you know, try and spend some time hitting the toe and the heel. And initially that can actually, just like your strength training, can drop the percentage of strength initially is, is same in golf. You know, if I get a player who's a really good striker and I get them to start exploring the face, initially that can open up a little inconsistency. But then there's that rebound effect where those new skills are actually improve them long term. And so, yeah, we call that discovery learning. And, and it's one of those things where, like, obviously the hardest shot in golf is straight if you want to hit a ball straight. But the guys that hit it straight, spent a lot of time, in my experience, the best straight ball hitters also spend a lot of time on the range curving the ball because the more you curve it right to left, left to right, it's easier to know what the middle is. Now you're talking our language, Craig. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> 100%. All right. Well, we've reached our, I told you 90 minutes was our limit. Usually we've reached it. Thank you for taking so much time out of your day. I hope you come back. I mean, there's so many topics we can explore, but anytime. Yeah. Everyone just honestly go on the My TPI site, go on their YouTube page. You guys, to your credit, have shared a lot of information for free. And I always appreciate when anyone does that. Cool. Well, thanks guys. Really appreciate you bringing me on. That's the best place. It looks like you're not on Twitter. You made the smart decision not to be on Twitter. TPI. We TPI have... is, but you not, not personally. So people can't scream at you. <laughs> That's correct. Okay, so everyone go to my TPI. That that's the takeaway here. You got it. Adam, where can everyone find you? AdamYoungGolf.com or you can go to Amazon and get the practice manual, the ultimate guide for golfers. I talk about periodization of skill and training, which relates strongly to the topic we talk about here. John, where can people find you? And as Greg was saying, you need a strong foundation. So of course you need to buy my book, The Four Foundations of Golf, also available on Amazon. Thanks to everyone for listening. We appreciate the feedback and we will see you next time with a new episode.